online at kpfa.org. The time is 3.30. Stay tuned next for Cover to Cover with Javelin Richards. Welcome to Cover to Cover with Javelin at Javelin's Bistro. Good to be with you the day after Valentine's Day. Let's see how we weigh in tomorrow morning after all the chocolates that we've had. (laughs) Hope you enjoyed your day if you celebrate Valentine's Day. Hope you did. Today I'd like to bring you a collection of short stories written by the first-time author May Tam. Tam May, rather. I apologize for that. Tam May was born in Israel but grew up in the United States. She earned her degree in English literature in Israel before returning to the States where she currently resides. She started writing when she was 14 and writing became her voice. She writes psychological fiction and the title of her first authored book is Nard Nard Bones and Other Stories. Uh, you could find out more about her at uh, com. Five Uncommon Tales of Loss, Fear, and Guilt. In this collection of five short stories, strange relationships reveal the web of human emotions that began in childhood and never really die. A newly divorced woman goes back to school to begin a new chapter of her life, only to find herself circling back to where she started. A woman and her friends spend a day at the circus that mingles childhood nostalgia with brutal fear. A woman ventures out of her isolated existence one quiet Saturday afternoon to an exhibit that leaves an eerie imprint on her psyche. A middle-aged violinist reveals the mystery behind his declining artistic powers to a stranger on a train. And the title story, told in journal entries, and first-person narrative paints a picture of the complicated bond between an orphan brother and sister. These stories leave an impression of the present and future in the shadow of the past. I want to welcome my guest, Tam May. How are you? Oh, I'm doing great, Jocelyn. Thank you for having me. Oh, you're so welcome. And also, um, as a reminder, if you, if anyone has a, a call for Tam or want to join a conversation, a literary conversation, the toll-free number is 800-958-9008. And I'll repeat that number midway through our conversation. And you can always go online as well, kpfa.org. So, Tam, first of all, tell us what psychological thriller is. Well, uh, psychological fiction, mm-hmm. yes. Uh, psycho- no, but you're not, you're not far off, uh, Jocelyn, because uh, psychological thriller is actually, you know, kind of um, uh, sort of a uh, subgenre, per se, of psychological fiction. But psychological fiction is really about um, creating a story from the psychological makeup of a character. So, in other words, it's kind of starting from the character and, and kind of working uh, its way out um, in, in terms of the, of the story. So it, it's sort of, you know, taking um, this tapestry, uh, you know, human tapestry uh, that all of us have with um, our feelings, uh, emotions, 
thoughts, uh, dreams, nightmares, um, you know, all, all kind of everything that's sort of below the surface, and it's really telling a story um, from that. Or from an aspect of that, I should say, because, you know, trying to tell a story uh, about co- a com- the complete tapestry of the character, you know, kind of becomes a little bit too much. <laughs> okay, so you're taking this tapestry and you're actually, if I'm understanding you right, and you're letting it drive the character in their daily rituals? That is exactly right. Yes, that is exactly right. Um, and, you know, a lot of uh, non-psychological fiction works do, you know, have kind of a psychological elements, but psychological fiction really, is, you know, kind of makes that the, the focus of the story. What, how did you discover this kind of fiction? Because what I, if I understand you right, your characters in your book are driven by that landscape beneath the surface, whereas in fiction, it, the the character might be reacting to the circum the external circumstances. Uh, that's the relationship. But your characters tend to they ha- they may have the same external relationship in terms of here's a building in the building there's six floors the same people working that building but there's their motivation their movement is based on childhood stories dramas as you said dreams and nightmares yes how did you come to that and what's the choice why did you choose that for this series of stories for you um, I, I came to it, uh, for, I actually discovered uh, when I was 16, um, sort of a little book uh, by uh, writer Anais Nin um, called um, uh, Under a Glass Bell. And it was a collection of stories that really um, do that. I mean, you know, she really takes uh, characters and just kind of really um, blows them apart in a way. Uh, you know, so we kind of really see them from the inside. And that really intrigued me. And um, I think like many writers, uh, I was very uh, uh, afraid, <laughs> you know, to kind of pursue that because it was something that was just so different from you know, a lot of the fiction that I was reading at the time um, and, uh, you know, a lot of fiction uh, that um, other writers were writing uh, and do write. And um, it wasn't until uh, about... Um, 15 years or so ago, uh, and, you know, I had kind of a, um, you know, I had some, uh, a personal loss, uh, and, uh, I was kind of dealing with that. And so that, that was when many of these, st- the stories in, in my collection were written, and it kind of really came out of that. You know, it was kind of something that was just too much a part of me to really ignore at that point. So in understanding that and without walking across your own personal life, you're, I'm hearing that because you had this personal loss, the one of the only places in which it could speak would be a genre of writing that allowed for what is usually hidden away 
those are those the tapestry as you call it of our emotions we usually hide that dress it up put perfume on it medicate it and move into the world you needed to write characters that could be authentic to the truths that were both known and unknown in their lives Yes, that that's absolutely right. Yes, you know that that was really um, the place that I could express it uh, and and explore it. Um, you know, and and uh, uh, because as I say, you know, the writing really became my voice because um, I, you know, for for whatever reasons, um, I didn't have kind of my individual voice. Uh, and um, writing kind of really, and especially psychological write, fiction writing, really helped me to discover that. So let's give the audience an opportunity to hear what that sounds like, what is psychological fiction, and how we can differentiate that from fiction. Again, looking at your genre as a character's uh, move about their daily rituals with this grocery list of information internally as in other fiction another way to look at it is characters who re- are responding to circumstances uh, outside of them and your characters bring in all of their stuff so read to us if you will I really enjoyed starting off with Mother of Mischief, which is really the, f- the first story in your novel, but just looking at her as a child and what she was in this story. First of all, tell us about the story, and then we'll do it, and then I'll ask you to do an excerpt, but tell us what the story is about. Yes, uh, the story is about um, uh, a middle-aged woman who um, has been kind of, uh, has sort of been put in a maternal role uh, since she was um, young, since she was a child, and kind of, you know, followed that through into her marriage. And then her marriage breaks up, uh, and she she kind of makes a pact with herself in a way to sort of uh, get out of that role uh, and, and find herself. And, okay, and then what begins to happen? When, as she begins to find herself, so this when you, so what you're saying is that her psychological upbringing, being young and being assigned these roles for that her mother or father would have had, has informed the way she moves about in the world, and she's trying yes, to break away from that. That is absolutely correct. Yeah, yeah. This kind of this this um, identity of you know this the, of the mother of of the nurturer has kind of really driven um, who she is, and she's trying to you know kind of um, get out of that in a way. Because the first line you say her younger brothers used to call her mother of mischief. In the smoky town of Rawlins, where their father had owned a jewelry repair shop and their mother cooked franks and beans over an iron stove, Marie was left to tend to her brothers after school. So the whole notion of being called mother of mischief would in, has a lot of information in there. And now, and so you say she grows up, she gets married, then she, did she divorce her husband or did her husband divorce her or was it um, amicable? 
No, it was actually her husband divorces her to marry uh, a much younger woman. Okay. So why do we, uh, you read something where she, I think it's, it's page three, and right above the paragraph that's about to start, it says she vowed she would never be mother of mischief again. Now, her husband has divorced her for a younger woman. Uh, she's still carrying that title from childhood. And if you could start where she starts to be, she wants to begin her life. Okay. She entered the university in the Women's Studies program. Because of the prudent alimony she received from Walter, she had no choice but to apply to the student organization for a shared apartment. They sent her to a pretty Spanish building on a quiet side street. It was only after she accepted without looking too judiciously at the names of the other inhabitants that she realized her roommates were three young men, one of them younger than her younger brother. To be fair, they demanded nothing of her. There were two bathrooms, one small and one large, and they offered to let her have the large one all to herself. They participated in the cooking and the housework and kept the volume of their music down. She found herself warming to the scraggly morning faces, and while she allowed none of them to coax out the casting eye and the protruding hip, they sometimes sat down to a late breakfast with her on Sunday mornings and talked about their studies, their part-time jobs, and their friends. At the end of her first year, one of the boys left, and they applied for a new roommate. They wanted to pick a woman, but the applicants were all men. They decided on Henry. At 19, Henry was the youngest in the household and some kind of mechanical genius who had delayed going to college because of the death of his mother. Marie was the last one in the house to meet him. He was already caught in the chaos of unpacking boxes when she walked in. His back was to her as he opened a wooden chest and began pulling out pictures. He lined them up on the desk. She could see he was painfully thin with the emaciation of one whose meals always left him just a little bit hungry. His shoulders and back would have been comfortably muscular with good nourishing. The slim boy touched a nerve in her, reminding her of her youngest brother who couldn't tolerate anything but franks and beans until he was 20. Aha. Uh -huh. See? <laughs> I got it. So this is where you say in the back where you say you, you really can't run away uh, from your childhood. That they try, that your characters try to, and she's made this commitment She's in this space, and suddenly someone walks walks in, and then there's a memory that opens up. Tell us what happens at the, in the in the what unfolds because clearly this young man that comes in there has touched a, a memory nerve. What happens in that story? Yes, um, and what happens is that uh, Henry, who is kind of uh, who is um, grieving still grieving for his mother, uh, he he kind of brings out, he brings her back mm. to that uh, maternal role um, that, that she played with her brothers. And so she, um, uh, he goes out at night to, you know, kind of doing the stuff that students do, you know, uh, getting drunk in women, or sometimes he just kind of sits and, and sort of broods. Uh, and she she kind of waits in the apartment for him, and then she goes out 
and uh, finds him where he is, and she just kind of leads him by the hand home. You know, no no conversation, um, you know, silence between them. Uh, so she she's kind of come. She, so as much as she wants to let this you know role go, it's it's not that easy. It's it's so embedded in her that it's not that easy for her to do. So the last paragraph, this is sort of sums up what you're saying. Uh, she's walking him home uh, after one of these nights, and she's uh, Marie led Henry like a mother leading her little boy home after tragedy. But read us that last paragraph on page eight that starts with one night. Okay. One night, the door to her bedroom opened, and he came wavering in like a willow in the wind. Without looking at her, he said, Mother of mischief, mother of panic, will you ever stop? She froze as the door shut with a soft scratch. And that's how you ended. What is that about? Did did, did he know? <laughs> right. Did he know her, her name from childhood? Or is just she fell in that common bucket that everyone knew their language? Uh, well, it's, uh, you know, it's, um, uh, uh, I mean, it, it's sort of left kind of hanging a little bit, you know, because they, they have had, um, you know, uh, uh, some, some kind of rapport, you know, they have had a rapport, you know, they've sat together early, um, in the mornings without the others and just kind of talked, you know, he talked to her. So, you know, there's there's uh, the possibility, and I, and I'm saying it this way because you know it's it's kind of something that is sort of left open. You know, uh, maybe she um, told him about herself. Maybe it's it, just like you said, they kind of know the language. You know, they feel the language uh, between one another. So it, it's sort of left open, and and that's kind of another aspect I think about psychological fiction is that it doesn't always. You know, have um, it doesn't always have kind of you know neat little um, not not everything is explained, and not everything is you know it, it doesn't have kind of like an it's not like a neat tidy bundle of a story, uh, in other words. And, and it leads us to wonder, like, did she have a conversation to unpack her emotional baggage and say, yo, growing up, I had to take care of my brothers. You remind me of a brother. They used to call me this. And that he brings it back around to her at the very end. It leaves her sitting there shocked as the door closes. Yeah. The next story is bracelets. And this takes place at a circus. Yes. Tell us about that story. Um, yeah, bracelets is about a um, a group of friends who go to the circus. They're they're not children; they're adults, and they go to the circus. And uh, a um, they're they're watching, you know, kind of the the um, um, the circus acts. And there's a circus act with the with the lion, um, and the lion gets loose and injures a child, and that kind of really shakes them all up. Uh, it, it kind of shakes everybody up. And, and the, the, um, the main character, uh, the woman, um, she wants kind of everybody to sort of have a sleepover <laughs> in a way to, um, uh, with, um, the, her, her friend, the, the other friends are actually his friends. There, so uh, Isabel, so every, Isabel is the, the woman, right? Yes. And then uh, her and Mickey is the her friend. 
Yes, absolutely. Yes. Okay. Yeah. So, you know, they all go to Mickey's apartment and they, you know, kind of have a sleepover. And so it's, it's kind of that moment where she's with Mickey and she, this sort of moment of terror, almost a childhood terror, because, you know, it's, it's kind of like a, uh, a moment that I think, you know, every child's nightmare. Uh, and, um, she's, she's has, it's this moment of comfort for her. The sleepover. To be with him and to be with them, yes. Okay, okay. And the terror is that all all the children going to circus are, part of them are afraid that the lion's going to get loose. And then in your story, the lion does get loose. The girl is yes. bit. The lion is sort of like a smug look of triumph even because it's still chained, but somehow was able to reach this child. And that this event itself has traumatized these grown people as well. It took them back to a place of their own childhood uh terror so you're bringing us back there okay so you so you bring so they're to sleep over what happens uh and what happens is that um uh, mickey goes to to make tea and um uh and and she you know goes with him and they have this kind of moment of comfort and then uh, one of the one of his friends, who's kind of uh, he's sort of uh, he's a big guy, but in intellectual, he's kind of a little bit, um, you know, he's he's not maybe uh, as bright as the others. You know, he he like a child. He kind of begins to cry, and and you know, and Mickey is there to kind of comfort him. So that sort of uh, sort of brings the story to I think kind of more more of a hopeful note. Of a yes, read that passage where he's uh, comforting his friend. I found that interesting that here Mickey, he, you know, they work together. Mickey works in the mailroom and people talk down to him uh, because he quit school uh, and it, his reading level. Uh, that actually he wanted, he found a list of 100 greatest books in the world when he was 14, and he had been reading through it ever since. So his quitting school to read on his own sort of shows a sense of independence about him and a difference that I found in a likable way. Uh, but they talked down to him at his job, and now here and a group of friends go to the circus, and he's the one who's bringing comfort. So re- read that part of the comfort, because it gives me a, a, a insight to that particular man and why she is drawn, why Isabel is drawn to him. Uh, do you happen to know what page? Uh, let's see. I turn over. I think we're all the way up into... Uh, fifteen. Okay. And it's like they, um, yes, he's holding, he's holding her hand, and then later a scream of the night. Okay. Later, a scream of the night woke Isabel. She could see Toby's massive figure walking back and forth a few mattresses away, his face crawling with fear. Mickey was kneeling beside him and speaking in a sweet and gentle voice. Isabel stirred, murmuring, he's afraid the white demon is going to get him, too. And the white demon being the lion's name. The the lion, yes. There was silence. The shattering of it disappeared in the black mist of the early morning fog, high over their heads, untouched by the clouds that moved in from the hills. Mickey's voice rose like a steel wall against a ring of bullets. No white demon is going to get anyone. Isabel laid her head back against the pillow. 
The softness absorbed her hair, her small head and her lips spreading against the smooth fabric. She felt his warm hand brush against her cheek as he passed her on his way back to bed. Was was Isabel in love with Mickey? <laughs> That's the part where you want to be. One of those. You want to yeah, leave it to the reader. I know. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> okay, please. <laughs> no, leave it to the reader. So, so I'm speaking. Uh, this is Jobins of Jobins Bistro, and I'm speaking with Tam May, uh, writer, and her first uh, series of work, Gnarled Bones and Other Stories. So, Tam, the cover of the book is. A woman who could be 150 years old if one lived that long. She, her neck, <laughs> right? Her, she's, um, her neck reminds me of a tree and the rings around the tree and her cheeks are sunken in and her nose and her hair uh, against her shoulders and her hands are worn and, and lived and touched and held and neglected. Tell me the, your choice for that. Yeah, it, it, it was, you know, I, I saw the, the painting and it just, um, right away, the, the picture of Priscilla in, um, the story Neural Bones came into my mind and this idea of, you know, kind of the putting something inward, sort of wearing it on you in a way, um, and, and the, the emotion of, this uh, this woman who was about grief and loss to me, um, it, 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 and that was kind of the emotion that really drove a lot of these stories, uh, especially in our bones. Is this painting uh, a known painting, or it, the picture on the book? It's or is that just made up for you? You found it? Uh, yeah, no, this was actually from uh, a, a real painter. Oh, okay. That's something I didn't know. Thank you for that information. And Gnarled Bones and Other Stories by Tam May. In the last uh, few minutes we have, the main story, Gnarled Bones, uh, the quote, start with the quote, and that's on page 35. Ah, uh, yes. And then if you could read, oh, okay. read us into our goodbye, that'd be wonderful. Great. Let love clasp grief lest both be drowned. Alfred Lord Tennyson in Memorandum A.H.H. Em and Denny were 7 and 13 when their parents died. They died in a crowd, their eyes glaring around them, for the devil they had always told their children would destroy them if they didn't keep silent and hidden. The house they built on the outskirts of Muir Woods was almost a fortress surrounded by redwoods and a lake spilling almost into the backyard. But the children didn't mind. And the geese and piping loons were their companions, and their parents stayed home, teaching them from antiquated books. Once a horn sounded from the, cro- from the crooked road that led out to town, a car had gotten lost. The glass-eyed glare from Em and Demi's parents made the driver leave thick tire tracks in the dirt as he sped away. Okay, hold it. i got to stop you there because I, I remember when I read that, I was like, wow. So this is already in, cha- in the first paragraph setting us up of the sort of oddness, if you will, of the, of the parents. 
again, how did they die? Yeah, they, that's left open. <laughs> okay, so this you know, is a part of the psychological fiction. You leave enough open so somehow as a reader, we have to fill in the blank. And so for me, I wonder if we fill in the blank with whatever we bring to the table, it kind of shows where we're at in our tapestry of emotions. Yes, very true. Yes, that's very true. That is, is that part intentional? Of psychological fiction. Um, it's it's um, uh, part of it is intentional, and and part of it is the idea of focusing, putting the focus on something different. Well, I want th- a different area. Well, I want to thank you, and again, www.tammayauthor.com. Thanks for being my guest. Thank you. All right. This is Joblin, Joblin's Bistro. I'll see you next time. Cover to cover, open book. You want to make a smart investment? Support KPFA during our Winter Fund Drive beginning Tuesday, February 21st. Your investment pays off in big dividends as we shed light on the political sound and fury, bringing unfiltered voices speaking truth to power. It's our challenge to win your support by keeping you informed and inspired. You are essential in keeping KPFA on the air. Invest today, and we promise to stay as vigilant as always. Love that sugar? Maybe Oakland writer Gary Taubes can help you get over it. He's just written The Case Against Sugar. Taubes will present his book Tuesday, March 7th, 7.30 p.m. at the Hillside Club, 2286 Cedar Street in Berkeley. This KPFA benefit has wheelchair access. The delightful Joanna Monqueros will be hosting. Tickets at brownpapertickets.com and indie bookstores. For Gary